LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Dr. Fred Allen Wolf, who joins us to discuss some of the ideas and concepts explored in his book, Time Loops and Space Twists. In his most important work since taking the quantum leap, Fred explains how our understanding of time, space and matter have changed in just a few years and how within these new ideas we have a glimpse into the mind of God. Making comparisons to Hindu Vedic and Judeo-Christian cosmology, he explains how the universal command of the deity, let there be light, now takes on a new scientific meaning. Everything is literally made of light, and the reader will learn how quantum physics proves this is so. Quantum physics can be daunting to the layperson, but Fred has simplified and made these abstract concepts very comprehensible. He uses the wisdom from science and challenges our thoughts on religion by reminding us of true spirituality. His approach leads us to a new view of how consciousness and science are related. Hello and welcome, Fred, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you very much, Greg. Nice to be on your show. Now, Fred, you've written a number of books concerning quantum physics and the implications of it, and any one of which we could discuss for hours on end. But I thought today we would talk about some of the concepts and ideas set out in one of your books called Time Loops and Space Twists. And you open the book up by highlighting the fact that quantum physics is showing us that the relationship between time, space and matter is not at all what most of us think, nor in fact is the actual fundamental nature of time, space and matter what most of us think. Uh, what most of us think is always hard to say. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not even sure I know what I'm thinking most of the time. So uh, <clears throat> what uh, the the purpose of this book was um, to weave together a story uh, based upon <clears throat> what we've learned in the last, say, 100 years, maybe more, actually a more shorter period of time, during the last, say, 40 to 40 years, maybe 50 years, uh, of something we've called quantum field theory. <clears throat> and it's a, it's a, a picture which even though it has quantum in its uh, in its in its description <clears throat> is really a very different kind of quantum physics than even the kinds of quantum physics that I've talked about previously or that others have written about um, and it's this new uh, twist that comes in through something called a field that makes quantum field theory introduced some really unusual ways of thinking, 
changing our whole idea about even what is meant by space and time and matter. And uh, this new picture, in a nutshell, could be said very simply. There is no intrinsic out there space, time, and matter that somehow these things are being continuously created, and specifically through an action of something called a field. Uh, All the particles of matter that we see don't really exist as little solid hunks existing out there, but they're popping in and out uh, according to the way bubbles would pop in and out of an ocean that is frothing and uh, foaming in a kind of a storm. So the vacuum of space and time is really kind of stormy and uh, uh, it's frothing all the time. And this, this turbulent activity is what gives rise to the seemingly magical, stable existence of matter as we see it. And it's that story that I wanted to tell. And I wanted to tell it in a way is different from the way I usually tell my stories about quantum physics, which is to use metaphor and other types of illustration to make the points clear to a non-scientific audience. I decided to take a chance. I said, okay, if you're going to be reading me, I'm going to presume that you've had at least some idea of what high school algebra is about. If I tell you that um, X... Uh, plus three equals five, I imagine most of you will be able to figure out what X has to be. Um, And if you have trouble with that, well, then you're not going to be able to understand my book very well. So I want you to be able to at least understand the simplest algebraic expression of what it might mean. Or in geometry, if you understand that there is something called Pythagorean theorem, which says that X squared plus Y squared equals, uh, well, let's put it this way, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Uh, If you understand the idea that Pythagoras wrote several thousand years ago, and you've seen in high school geometry the so-called triangle theorem of Pythagoras, uh, I, I expect you guys to at least understand that. Now, if you can get through that and you have no problem understanding what that all means, then this book is going to be easy to read. But if you don't understand any of that, if you're still at the level of, geez, if you tell me what five is, or you know, if you tell me uh, five plus six is I don't know, then don't read this book. So th- this is not meant for the guys who have no idea what math is about or don't want to think about math. At least I want them, uh, the people to read this book are people that have at least a little bit of math. Because with just that tinge of mathematical understanding, a world is unveiled, which you would never be able to appreciate or see. It's kind of like saying to somebody, okay, you can listen to a piece of music and hear it play. And if you have no idea what music is, you may not appreciate that there's a big difference between, say, the Beatles and Bach. Uh, If you don't know music very well or have any idea, you may be able to hear there's a difference, but you wouldn't really know what is it that Bach was doing that's so different from what the Beatles were doing. But if you know a little bit about music, you can say, oh, wow, I can see this. There's something very different about rhythms, about context, about how notes are intertwined and the way Bach used uh, music as compared to the way the Beatles composed their music. So this is the kind of idea. If you know a little bit more than my normal reader expectation is, then 
this book will uh, open up some windows onto how the universe is constructed. Well, I consider myself to be weak at maths, and I found the book uh, very readable. And even though there might have been some equations I had to go over a couple of times, um, I mean, I actively dislike mathematics, to be honest, but I found it very, very digestible and uh, very clear. And one of the things that you do with the book so good for the interested layman is your use of diagrams. And in the early part of the book, when you're sort of dissecting in the nature of time, it becomes obvious that we all have an understanding that time isn't quite what we treat it to be day to day, but we don't really explore the sort of anomalous experiences. For example, everyone can understand how if you're walking on the beach at the sunset with your girlfriend for 30 minutes, that time might fly by. If you're waiting in a dentist's waiting room for 30 minutes to get drilled, maybe that's good. that time is going to drag. And there's something fundamental there. And basically, use um, simple maths and simple diagrams to show us that linear time basically is an illusion. There isn't an absolute no. And I love your expression as well uh, to do with clocks being fantasy. They take us into a sort of a fantasy land where everything is ordered and we always know when it's four o'clock or whatever it happens to be and where when it's going to be five o'clock and when we need to be and where we need to be. Well, the, th- the thing is, nobody really knows what time is. Uh, so let's let's first of all get everybody on the right page here. No one, not the greatest physicist, not Stephen Hawking, not Albert Einstein, not anybody that's ever lived in physics has any idea what time is. That is, we can't equate time to something which is not time and expect that equated that equation to explain the nature of time. Uh, we just can't do it. If you tell me to explain what a molecule is, I can do that. I can tell you a molecule is made of atoms. So. Uh, from that point of view, I've, I've clarified what is a molecule. But if you ask me what is time, I can't take time apart and say, well, I could say, for example, time is made of seconds. But then the, that begs the question, what do you mean by what is a second? Well, a second is a unit of time. <laughs> so it, it, it gets into a circle. So you can't really say what time is. Yet, in spite of the fact that we can't say what time is, we all, every one of us, has an experience of time. We all experience time very directly uh, through, you might say, and I'll use a metaphor now, the movement of our thought. The fact that there seems to be one thing happening after another and our understanding of even what that sentence means, that one thing happens after another thing or one event occurs after another or before another. We seem to have a sense of what that means through something we call our personal memories. And, of course, the metaphor, the uh, example you used about walking on the beach with your sexy girlfriend or waiting in the waiting room for the drilling dentist, uh, even though the time, the the actual unit of measure of time as given by a clock might be the same under these circumstances, our experience of what we had or what occurred during that, during those two intervals of time can be very different. Uh, usually uh, what happens is uh, – uh, depends on uh, how many events are occurring within an interval. With that is what, how we feel about things. Uh, there's the old story about just before you die, or in an automobile accident, or something. Your whole life flashes before you in a few seconds, or you get a tremendous number of events 
piling in very, very in, 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 in very rapid sequence so that if you were to normally look at what those events would be in so-called normal time, it seems like uh, a year of time flashed by in a few seconds or something like that. Uh, so, so in terms of subjective experience of time, the, they can be all over the map. The, everybody can have a different subjective experience. I myself, uh, when watching something I'm very absorbed by, time goes by very quickly. Or doing something I'm very absorbed by, time goes by very quickly because I'm no longer paying attention to anything external which would tell me what time is or what time it is, what the clock is saying. Uh, so uh, subjective time and objective time are very different experientially. And what physics tries to do <clears throat> is to give some way of dealing with time in a way that is, you might call it, democratic, so that we all agree that we know what we're talking about when we say what time it is. For example, even though you are in the UK and I'm in California, USA, uh, we agreed to talk at a certain time. It wasn't the same time for you as it is for me uh, because we're in different time zones, so to speak. But we all basically knew objectively what it meant to be on time for this talk. Uh, so uh, this is so-called clock time or the use of time as a way of measuring or giving an objective view. By objective, I mean something, an event or a sequence of events that you and I can look at, even though we have very different subjective experiences of what those events are, we would agree that they occurred at certain basic times. And so that's what physics deals with. And it's in that realm of space, time, and matter. It's that kind of time that we talk about. Well, I suppose, as you highlighted, I mean, life in the modern world would be impossible, really, without clock time. And the clock, of course, is one of the oldest human inventions, but it sort of prompts the question of what life was like before clocks. I mean, we know that they originated with observations of, uh, you know, solar and lunar movements. But it's also possible, I suppose, that human consciousness was different before clocks. It's possible, I suppose, to move on from that and say that clock time has affected our consciousness well, let's say this. I, I'm not saying that clock time affected our consciousness, but our consciousness demanded that we invent clock time. Uh, it's more the other way around. Um, uh, human beings are conditioned to one basic fact of life. Born, live, die. So since we're conditioned to that, and we all go through that, uh, regardless of what age we're at, we are concerned with how to make any sense or order of born, live, die. We want to know what to do with that. And uh, in order to deal with that, we've learned, well, in order to live, we have to try to lengthen what we might be called the number of subjective experiences we can have before or between born and die. And in order to do that, we find out, well, there's certain things we need to do. We got to breathe. We got to eat. We got to get rid of waste products. 
And in order to keep going, we got to make children. We got to have sex. So these are basic things. All of these things impose upon us a notion of time. Uh, we can't escape that. We, uh, for example, in Australian Aboriginal people, uh, when they do walkabout, um, the, uh, because the women and the men are constantly moving, uh, it turns out that women don't go into regular menstrual cycle during the time of movement. So that uh, in order for them to start to produce or reproduce or start to having babies, they've got to settle in an area for a while. And uh, so this means that a whole notion of time is dictated, for example, by the menstrual cycle uh, of human beings. Um, so uh, in Egypt, um, we have a notion of time which is dictated to us by uh, – the movement of the River Nile um, from spring to winter, I mean, uh, to fall through all the seasons. The Nile has a regular cycle. So we begin to notice these things and realize, well, it's pretty stupid to plant crops in, in dry sand. Uh, wet, moist sand is certainly a lot better than the dry sand or, or dirt or whatever. Uh, in fact, we can't even do it. So we begin to understand that at least it pays to pay attention to some way of determining when it's time to do an activity which will guarantee that the interval between B, being born, and D, being die, is as eventful and as pleasant and as long as could possibly be. So we invent clocks. Clocks are uh, ways of telling time. The first ones probably were sundials. Simply watch the sun and notice that it cast a shadow on a stick. And notice that, uh, well, when the shadow is pointing in towards the, uh, towards the west, it's early in the morning. When it's pointing towards the east, it's late in the afternoon. So there we have some idea of uh, where we are by watching the sun, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so all of these things, it, it's very natural for humans then uh, dealing with the crisis of life between B and D are going to uh, uh, create ways to uh, – tell time, to uh, deal with the world, uh, to learn about uh, planting and growing and what it takes to keep alive. And that gives rise to, uh, although it takes thousands of years for us to get there, gives, gives rise to physics. It's interesting that in order to maximize that experience, as you described, that we, many of us, in contrast actually to a lot of indigenous people, spend a lot of time in our minds in the past and in the future and not in what there seems there is, which is just right now. And that's all. We spend a lot of time thinking about things which do not have any necessary consequence for our survival. Is that what you're thinking? Is that what yeah, you're and also they, they, they don't have existence in the sense that if they're in the past, you know, they don't exist. And if they're in the future, they don't exist. But we spend a lot of time, you know, occupying our minds in this you know, journey called life, as it were, lost in those places, whereas perhaps the best place for us would be in the present moment. Well, let's, let's now look at that. I'm going to tell you something that might be a little bit shocking to you, and uh, I want you to understand what I'm saying as clearly as I can make it. There is no such thing as the present moment. 
it all if you're saying the past and the, and the future do not exist now even the now doesn't exist now there is no now in fact you yourself can't even understand the words i've said without having a past a present and a future uh, by which you construct a meaning to the words which i've put into your head through your eardrums uh, you cannot even understand what I've said now, now. You only understand what I've said now by reconstructing what I've said now from what I said previous to now and building an anticipation of what I'm going to say next. So there is no such thing as now, now. There is no absolute now. Uh, and that's something that uh, it took us a little while to realize because we got so used and conditioned to thinking about experiential time is the only real time when uh, when we try to talk about what that is uh, we have really no way of talking about it for you to have a thought for you to think for you to have an experience requires what I call a window of time a time interval you cannot specify even where and when the events that you call occurrences of whatever you think is happening to you you can't even say when and where and exactly where they when they actually occurred now one of the most fascinating sections of the book you talk about uh, the nature of light um, which of course moves at speed of light and you talk about the light speed barrier and of course at light speed uh, there's no time and space and most of us consider that uh, well popular Science tells us that the you know, the light speed barrier cannot be breached, but the situation is a little bit more nuanced and complex than that, isn't it? Well, uh, the question really, uh, or or the 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 clue or the way of understanding what you just said lies in one word: the word breach. Breach implies starting from some place and getting to someplace else, going through some kind of hurdle of some sort, uh, going from A to B, uh, with uh, or going from say A to C. You have to first get the B, uh, A B C. So, <clears throat> uh, breach is the key word here. Um, when you look at what we've learned from relativity theory, uh, what it's taught us very basically, this is called, by the way classical relativity theory, and I, this, I have to make a distinction here between what's classical and what's quantum. Uh, when we're talking about classical relativity theory, we're talking about a world in which there are objects which have properties like mass or charge <clears throat> or whatever, or momentum. Uh, these are real properties of, of things we see. Um, when we uh, watch these objects, and exert forces upon them in the way that Newton said what we mean by that, by what's meant by a force and so forth. When we exert forces on these objects, we can watch what happens to them. And as a result, when you exert a force on an object, it starts to move. And if you continue to exert a force on the object, the, mo the object will move faster and faster. It will accelerate because a force produces acceleration of an object. So the question then became, well, can I get an object accelerating so quickly or so fast or with such great magnitude that eventually it speeds up to beyond the speed of light? And in so-called classical or Newtonian physics, that answer would be 
Of course you can. There's no limit to how fast you can go. You can go at infinite speed because in Newtonian physics, uh, light plays no role. It has no particular role. It doesn't act as a barrier of any kind. It simply is another speed. With Einstein, there came a new recognition about light, and namely that uh, <clears throat> it seemed to be uh, a limitation. Uh, it seemed to be indicating that uh, uh, that matter itself uh, could not be pushed or accelerated to reach a speed that would exceed the speed of light. That is, if you kept pushing on it, well, what happened to the piece of matter wasn't that it would necessarily start increasing its speed. It would start increasing its mass or its momentum would keep going up because uh, momentum is mass times velocity. But the velocity would just, what is called asymptotically, that is, very slowly approach the speed of light, but never actually reach the speed of light. Meanwhile, the mass of the object would keep increasing on and on and on and on, as, as large as it could get, depending on how much energy you put into it. So this brought the birth of what we call the atomic age, E equal mc squared. That energy uh, goes into matter, uh, not necessarily into speed. And this is where, uh, this is a cornerstone of uh, what is called quantum field theory. It's the basis by which we now understand that energy and matter are really different forms of the same kind of stuff. Well, we'll talk more about the, the light speed buyer in a moment. Um, but I don't know if you're aware of um, a scientific group called the 100-Year Starship Group. Um, there were some popular articles about them recently. It's basically run by a former astronaut and funded by DARPA. And its mission is to, quote, make the capability of human travel beyond our solar system or to another star a reality within the next 100 years. And this guy worked out of NASA, Harold White, um, just last September presented this um, paper called Warp Field Mechanics 102. An example from this was that uh, if they're able to achieve warp drive, that it's, instead of taking 75,000 years to get to Alpha Centauri, which is the nearest star system to our own, uh, it could be done in two weeks. Now, I can't you know, fathom the science behind this, but as an interested layman, I'm, I'm wondering, is there anything to this? Because my tentative understanding from all the years I've been reading about quantum physics, is that this, for a number of reasons, all sorts of reasons, this sort of thing is not going to happen. Well, let me try to explain it in a simple way, uh, because it, it, it is mind-boggling and the mind fails to really grasp it. Uh, what he's talking about is something called the warping of space-time. And the idea arises in Einstein's general theory of relativity, wh whereas one finds that the so-called field of gravity or gravitational field is really a warp of space and time. For normal gravity, as we say experience upon the Earth, the amount of warp is exceedingly small. It's so small as to be essentially negligible. However, when it comes to, say, sending signals from a GPS satellite to a ground-based observer who's trying to navigate and find out where he is and how far it is to where he's going, um, because these satellites are moving uh, at a relative speed to, say, what the speed might be on Earth and are in a higher 
orbit, sometimes as much as 25,000 or so miles above Earth, um, I'm not sure if that number is exactly correct. The gravitational field is so much weaker up there that the amount of warping of time, that is the bending or warping of time, at that lesser gravitational field, as compared to the amount on the Earth, is significant enough that it could lead to a distortion in the signal from the GPS satellite to the ground-based observer that could be maybe these miles off of where he's supposed to be going or where he actually is. So these clocks, they have to be atomic clocks aboard these satellites, they have to be constantly corrected for gravitational warping distortion. Even though it's very tiny, it's enough for great distances to cause significant errors. So even though we have, under normal gravity, some warping effects, they're very small. But these guys are envisioning this 100-year dream, whatever they have, is a really big warp. What these guys are envisioning is a way to generate the equivalent of a huge gravitational field, although there are some possibilities that it doesn't necessarily have to be gravitational. It might be uh, some kind of electromagnetic kind of distortion. There, gravity and electromagnetism, there are ways in which there's an interrelationship between them, which was discovered when we began to explore black holes and what happens when black holes are rotating or electrically charged. They can also induce distortions of space and time. These guys are trying to build a ship which is capable of distorting the space and time just in front of it. You can think of it as following way. Think of the space between here and the nearest star four light years away or whatever as being like an accordion pleat that's stretched. That would be normal. What distortion does is kind of squeegee in so that it's traversing distance, but the distance has been foreshortened by the field effect so that instead of traveling 4.3 light years, they may be traveling only a, a few miles of, because of the distortion. So this is the kind of idea that the distortion would only be available for them. The rest of space and time around where we live would not be distorted. We would be far enough away from the distortion as to not be disturbed by it. But the travelers inside the ship, they hopefully would not be disturbed by the distortion, but they would be able to travel through it. So that's the kind of vision they have. At this point in the conversation with Dr. Fred Allen Wolf, we switched to telephone for technical reasons, and then simply picked up our conversation concerning the possibility of developing warp drive for space travel. That's a, that's a subject which is uh, probably still in somewhat of a debate. Space-time distortion, um, stretching of space uh, or squeezing of space, uh, if you're in that space, presumably you would also be stretched and squeezed. And uh, so you would have what are commonly called uh, tidal effects, uh, like you know when um, the moon and the earth are in a relationship in which as the moon circulates, or as Earth and Moon circulate about the common center of gravity, which is actually somewhere within the nearer towards uh, between the surface of the Earth and the center of the Earth. Um, actually, both 
we're both revolving about that. In effect, it appears like the moon is revolving about us. Uh, during that revolution, the uh, ocean water and bodies of water are gravitationally distorted. Uh, they're, they're pulled uh, in the direction which lines between the actual moon and the center of the Earth. So you can see this distortion on both sides of the Earth. Um, and <clears throat> so this is called a tidal distortion produced by gravity. And so one would expect with a huge gravitational field, you would literally pull a person apart. So the thing that you would not want to have, have of course, is if you're going to build a space drive, is to make sure that the ship doesn't get pulled apart. Otherwise, the inhabitants wouldn't be able to enjoy their ride. <laughs> no, to say the least. To say the least, right. Now, the, there's other implications here regarding time, uh, which you alluded to, and anyone who's ever seen Planet of the Apes will be aware that the, the astronauts on that uh, ship, they were traveling supposedly at near light speed, uh, a 2006-year journey during which they aged only 18 months uh, due to time dilation. So this would be something to uh, come into contention as well, wouldn't it? Well, of course. I mean, that's the basis by which the, there, there is a, a, a distortion of space and time. Uh, you, can gra you can gravitationally distort space and time, or let's talk about time specifically. You can gravitationally distort time, which is what, the, what we have occurring when we're talking about satellite uh, to ground communication. But we can also distort time relative to two, between two observers simply by moving. So it isn't necessarily just uh, gravity that does it. Uh, motion will do it too. This is, the, this is known as the special theory of relativity. And this is something that Einstein predicted. And uh, uh, more than 100 years ago, and uh, it's, it's the very basis upon which uh, a lot of our physics is, uh, is determined. So uh, the time dilation effect, uh, or so-called twin paradox, has been well documented and explained. It's been experimentally observed in terms of the ability of fundamental particles to decay into other particles, uh, they have a certain period of time in which they do this called lifetime, and that lifetime can be changed dramatically if these particles are moving relative to particles that are at rest. Particles at rest might decay in, in say, a millionth of a second, a microsecond, whereas if they're moving, that same decay might be extended to a factor of a 10 or 12 microseconds. Muon decay was has been notably has been measured experimentally in a number of experiments, and the mu moving muons relative to us decay slower. And uh, what's going on here is that even though their lifetimes appear to be longer relative to our viewing, as far as they're concerned, their lifetime is exactly the same as it always has been. In other words, what is one microsecond or one period of time for a moving observer can be longer or even shorter for an observer who's at rest relative to them. In, in, in usual cases, we're talking about somebody at rest. The rest observer will always observe the longer period of time compared to the moving observer. So this is a this uh, this is a basic tenet of relativity theory. 
when this, this is where the idea comes about where time disappears for light. As something moves closer and closer to the speed of light, uh, a period of time, let's say one second, takes a longer and longer time interval as measured on, say, the Earth. Uh, if something is moving 0.999999 and whatever, billion nines after point, uh, the speed of light, it might take a billion years for one second of its time to express, to actually pass. To the point when you say right at the speed of light, what happens? Well, since it takes infinity, uh, there's, there's actually no time actually passing. I mean, uh, everything, time just is no longer a consideration for particles that move at the speed of light, and there are particles that do that. They're called photons. Now, moving beyond that, another fascinating section in the book uh, is where you deal with virtual particles, uh, tachyons, in fact, and that entire realm and some of the implications for that? Well, um, the notion of uh, tachyons has been in physics for quite a long time. Uh, the question that naturally arose was, can we ever observe them? And, uh, and the answer seems to be no. Uh, they don't seem to be observable, although one really can't precisely say why. Uh, what they seem to be are something called virtual particles. That is, they are particles which appear between a initial event and a final event. Uh, initial event meaning something occurring that we can determine, and a final event being something that occurs that we can determine or measure, that between those two events, in order to explain how one event is causally connected to this, to the other, we have to bring into existence the possibility of these virtual particles, which can be moving at tachyonic speeds, that is faster than the speed of light. My whole book, a good part of my book, goes into explaining that uh, in a very uh, more methodical way that I can do over the air. But the basic idea is that you can't really have the observable universe that we have, which we've determined has both matter and antimatter, that is, electrons and, for example, positrons existing, if you do not have these tachyonic movement occurring between events which constitute electromagnetic events of some sort. So uh, this has led into uh, what is called particle creation and annihilation, and all that's basically explained in terms of the notion that things could go faster than the speed of light, as long as we are not talking about observable things, but things that happen in between observations. Now, one of the most mind-blowing concepts in the book is that of retro-causality of observations now determining what the past had to be. And one of the speculations is that has been made is did observers cause the Big Bang to happen, for example, in retrospect? And this is also the, the concept of uh, delayed choice, which, as you highlight in the book, has been experimentally verified. So perhaps you could uh, say something about that. Well, again, uh, the, the thing that you must keep in mind <clears throat> is that in quantum physics, in order to determine 
and a relationship between and a, between two events. We have to calculate. In order to make those calculations, we have to make a model of what is occurring, and that model has to be mathematical, and the mathematical constructs which take us from the initial event to the final event, in order to understand them better, we draw pictures. We, we say, well, here's what that means. And in the uh, case of the delayed choice experiment, uh, what you have is something which is very mysterious. You have a, an initial event, which is, say, a particle, uh, a photon being emitted, say, at the time of the Big Bang or whatever, um, and a final event being somebody on Earth measuring that photon landing into some kind of measuring device. And even though it might have taken 14 billion years or 13 billion years between the initial event and the final event, the experimenter can, by adjusting the experiment, determine by which way <clears throat> that photon traveled from the initial event to the final event. Um, because photons are quantum particles, and quantum particles are capable of not only traveling along one path between a given point and another, but they are capable of traveling along an infinite number of possible paths between one point and another. And this particular delayed choice experiment, when light goes by a gravitating body of some sort, the gravitating body acts almost like a kind of distorting lens. So the light actually gets bent around it. Gravity can bend light. And uh, uh, when, when that happens, when it, light gets bent around a gravitating body, according to quantum physics, well, you can say that maybe it bent around the north pole of the gravitating body, or maybe it bent around the south pole of the gravitating body, or possibly the east pole or the west pole. In other words, there are different ways in which that light could have traveled to get from uh, where it started to where we finally measure it. <clears throat> and these different ways are what are called coherent. They, uh, can, they can be in phase with each other, like there are waves in phase with each other. And as a result of that, we can do an experiment in which we can measure that coherence by setting up mirrors in such a way that the different waves interfere to produce a destructive interference where they cancel each other out along one possible way in which they could arrive, or they can constructively interfere along another possible way in which they can arrive just by our putting in place a kind of a mirror, called a half-silvered mirror. On the other hand, if we don't put the mirror in there, uh, our detectors will detect that it, it arrived by the North Pole or the South Pole, but not by both. Put the mirror in there, and it has to go by both poles. So whether light, which left 13 billion years ago, reached us by traveling along two paths to get to us, or only one path to get to us, is determined by us at the final moment. So we, in the future, are determining what possibly had to have occurred between the two events. And it's what's possibly had to occur between the events that becomes open to question. This is where quantum mechanics exerts its weirdness and where we have this kind of 
backward in time effect occurring. Quantum physics does not allow us to determine what is going on in the universe every single moment. Particularly, it doesn't tell us what's going on at unobserved moments. Only when we observe things do we construct a map of what actually occurred, and in building that map up, we make a logical pathway which says, oh, it went along this path to get there, or along these paths to get there. We can construct a logical understanding of what happened only based upon our observations. But what actually occurred then becomes a created reality rather than a reality which is already out there. So thus arises the whole notion that reality is being created by our observations. It doesn't exist prior to our observations. Now, can this behavior say anything uh, about our present in relation to the future? In that, that in, to say, uh, could the future be somehow shaping the present? Well, that's another story. Again, the question is, is there a future already out there? And is there a past that still exists that's already back there? In other words, do the, does the past, the present, and the future already exist? Are they present? Well, uh, in a certain sense, we know the answer to that question. For example, we're still receiving light from things which, from events that occurred billions of years ago. So obviously the past is still present because stuff that happened back there, we're just feeling the effect now. In fact, for you to hear what I've said, just this conversation, my voice had to be, had to modulate a carrier frequency which got sent uh, into a um, satellite uh, above the Earth, 25,000 miles or so, and then reflected down to Earth to you. So even though it appears that you're hearing me at the moment I'm saying these words, you're not. You're actually listening to what is for you the past. For me, it's my present, but for you, it's your past. It appears to be your present because you're hearing the words in your present, but the words you're hearing were not spoken in your present, they were spoken in your past. So we already know from that point of view, the past is a present, the past is always there. It doesn't take much to then speculate, well, what about the future? Is the future equally as omnipresent as the past is omnipresent? And there's really no good reason to say it isn't, other than our experience is that we more or less know what occurred in the past, but we don't know what's going to occur in the future. Does our knowledge determine whether something is real or not real? Or is reality something which is present, omnipresent, everywhere, without our knowledge, necessarily? Well, we would certainly argue that none of us knew that life took 13 billion years from the Big Bang to reach our eyes. Maybe we didn't know that 100 years ago or 200 years ago before we began to model the universe, but that doesn't stop it from happening. So our knowledge of what's happening doesn't necessarily preclude things not happening. In other words, our knowledge of the future, maybe we don't have good knowledge of the future, doesn't necessarily preclude that the future is not already present, isn't omnipresent. These are the things which physics, physics is thinking about because of the way we can distort space and time. 
we're thinking about such things as uh, can the future be present and influence the present? And there are formulations of quantum physics, very serious ones, in which uh, that is taken to be the case, that uh, what happens in the future uh, and what happens in the past together determine or influence what we can observe about the present. One of the biggest mystery, probably the biggest mystery really, is how the universe came into being in the first place. And quantum physics has added greatly to the pool of ideas about how this might have come about. And this concept of a, a, a vacuum, um, far from empty actually, um, and from which there is a, exists a fundamental instability and from which the arising of nothing, or sorry, something from nothing is not only possible, but perhaps even likely, maybe even necessary. First of all, we don't really know the Big Bang well enough to say what, in what medium did the Big Bang occur? The common idea or the most popular idea is that it occurred in empty space, vacuum. But I want to be very clear with you, there was no vacuum to begin with either. Uh, the absolute nothingness of nothing is unimaginable. But it wasn't a vacuum because a vacuum, as we understand it today, is a very lively thing. It's not just a, a dead thing. It's not just empty space. Uh, vacuum is a, a continual bubbling of the brew of quantum particles. And uh, that bubbling of the brew, that had to have been created in the Big Bang as well. So the Big Bang not only brought into existence the universe, it brought into existence time and space and matter and the vacuum in which time and space and matter can be said to exist. Now, perhaps the most profound part of the book comes towards the end when we're discussing the origin and role of mind in the universe. The idea that mind does not originate in the brain, consciousness does not originate from our physical brains, it is in fact universal. And this idea relates to the realm that we spoke about earlier, the beyond the light speed barrier. Yes, well, that's a, that's a, a huge speculation on my part. Um, uh, I've been interested in the subject of consciousness, and uh, <clears throat> uh, I've seen what, the more I investigate consciousness from a material-based uh, science, that is, consciousness is an epiphenomena that arises from purely electromagnetic or other processes within brain tissue, the more that idea seems to be as speculative and far out to me as any other idea about how consciousness arises. The question is, clearly, we don't have an experience of consciousness without our brains and nervous systems, uh, but is the brain the only place where consciousness exists? The answer seems to be no. One can argue, for example, that right now if you, uh, if I ask you to raise your left toe and tap with it on the floor, you pretty well are doing that. And if you notice that you're feeling your left toe on the floor, you're not feeling it in your head at all. So would you argue then that the consciousness of your left toe is in your brain? Well, you could argue that, but that, as far as you're concerned, is pure speculation. 
your experience isn't telling you your left toe is in your brain. Your experience is telling you your left toe is not near the floor, quite a, maybe a couple of feet from your head at all. So does consciousness only occur in the brain? Well, depending on what you want to call consciousness, I would say uh, this simple demonstration tells you it's not. When you look outside at an object going by you, you certainly are conscious of it, but uh, would you say that what you're observing is only occurring in your brain? Well, you could say that, but you obviously can experience the car roaring by you uh, and getting your feet out of the street uh, and minding your gaps as you stand in front of the underground system in London in the tube that uh, that speeding uh, subway car is definitely not just in your brain. Uh, it's got to be out there and uh, your consciousness of it, you could argue it's in your brain, but it's just like tapping your toe on the floor. It's just as much out there on that car as it is in your own head. Uh, there, there, there's no way to actually pin down and say my experiences are mine and only occurring in my brain. Of course, if you knock your brain out, uh, if you put it under anesthesia and do stuff like that, uh, you no longer have experiences of consciousness. That's true. And uh, one could then argue, well, that proves that that consciousness is occurring in the brain. No, not, not any more than you could say turning off a radio, uh, turning a dial or turning off your TV set proves that the television programs are originating in the television set. <laughs> They're not. Uh, your brain may be just some kind of a accentuated receiver which allows you to filter and determine experiences. So you see, when it comes to the origin of consciousness, there isn't a being alive on this planet or anywhere else that I know of that really knows what the heck he's talking about or she is talking about. They simply don't know, and they're speculating. And the problem is that more speculative credence to people who have so-called scientific know-how than we do to people who are maybe more philosophically minded. So this is my point. It may be that what we're really looking at is consciousness as a universal phenomena that occurs everywhere and that we are picking up on it through the filter mechanisms of our brains and nervous systems. Well, Fred, we've really only begun to skim the surface of uh, these many fascinating areas. Uh, but perhaps before we wrap up for today, um, I'd just like to suggest that people do uh, delve into your work and explore it and what it's revealing to us about the nature of reality and unreality. Um, because for my part, I mean, I, I don't think we can c contemplate these mysteries and then still look at the world and life in the same light. And I think that it's demanding the, the new science, if I can call it that, even though it might be 100 years old, is demanding that we see humanity perhaps you know, our destiny differently and that calls for us to live differently and I think that adds, that's the overarching message of your book which I took away. Well I think it's very important to realize that there there are mysteries abound and um, living in these mysteries for me makes it exciting um, because uh, with new discoveries that are coming in 
from time to time, they tend to uh, introduce a new understandings of these mysteries, and at the same time, they bring us into deeper mysteries. And to me, uh, this leads gives me a, a, what I would call a spiritual point of view. Uh, I don't think you can escape it. If you declare yourself to be a true scientist in any way and do not have a spiritual basis, you in some way have cut yourself off uh, from questioning even your own understanding of the way the universe works. And so I would say that you need to cultivate a kind of an appreciation of mystery or, if you will, a kind of spiritual understanding. It doesn't mean you necessarily have to believe in some supremo being, a god or whatever, but you certainly have to have some understanding that as a magnificent and as tragic and as beautiful as this existence is, it is amazing that it is at all. And to say that one knows or understands why it is the way it is, is in my opinion to be a complete fool because nobody but a fool would say that. And there are people, quite good scientists, who write books claiming they understand it, and frankly, they're just fools, fooling themselves and fooling other people into believing that they have the answer. The answer is, we don't know. And I think that's a great place to be and a great place to live in, to understand that anything new is possible, new discoveries are possible, new ways of existing are possible, because we don't have the final answer, and probably will never will. I think that's a wonderful note on which to end. Now, Fred, your books are widely available from all the usual outlets, um, but perhaps you'd just like to share with listeners uh, your website and well, anything else you'd like to share. Well, uh, you know, I, the, my, my problem is that I haven't been keeping up on my website, but my website, where you can find everything I've put up there up to now, is called fredallenwolf.com. And it's just a matter of looking me up on the web. It's a pretty simple website, pretty simple to find. If you know how to spell my name, you can find me uh, on the web. Uh, there's many places. I have YouTube videos. I have audios. Uh, I have down, you can download free papers from my website. Um, so there's multiple ways in which you can uh, experience uh, the things that I produced. Excellent. Well, Fred Allen Wolf, thank you very, very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. You're very welcome. Thank you. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website, LegalizeFreedom.com. That's Legalize-Freedom.com. And there you'll find an archive of programs on many equally interesting and important topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.